Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 107 for the final third of April 2014. This episode follows in the noble spirit of episode 63, the clip show number one, to be the clip show number two. Within this great work of nonfiction, we delve into three works of fiction, from gravity to lunar anomalies to rainbows. First up is a claim about gravity set up by Gerald Clark, who researched, quote, the forgotten history of humanity's Anunnaki legacy, end quote. For some reason, he was also delving into gravity. So, in, in the model for gravity, we're told in this, it's an accelerated force, 9.8 meters per second squared, or 32 feet per second squared. Okay? And yes. if it was truly an accelerated force, you drop something at altitude, it would accelerate and keep accelerating until it hit the ground. It doesn't. It reaches a terminal velocity. So, our model of gravity is wrong, at least as an accelerated force. Okay. No, not exactly okay. When I first heard this, I thought that it was an odd claim to make. Of course, gravity is an accelerative force. That's what a force is, by definition. But then I thought, no, Stuart, that's just your physics classes talking. To people who haven't wasted their lives the last 15 years studying this stuff, it may not be so clear. And that's why it's in this episode. In physics, the definition of a force is through what it does. It is something that causes a change in the motion of an object. Forces can be fundamental, or they can be what I'll just term a secondary contact force for this episode's purpose. Mathematically, Newton's second law states that the force acting on an object is equal to its mass times its acceleration. This is also known as F equals ma. That means that if an object is traveling in a vacuum, at a constant velocity, it has zero acceleration, so the net force, the sum of all of the forces acting on it, is zero. If it were accelerating, then the force would be non-zero. Another way to look at this is if you exert the same force on two objects with different masses, like if I were to push a bowling ball versus a styrofoam ball with the same force, then because of the bowling ball, because it weighs more than the styrofoam ball, the bowling ball will show a smaller acceleration than the styrofoam ball, assuming I pushed with the same force. That's because when you multiply the mass by the resultant acceleration, the force must still be the same. In introductory physics and engineering, I think, one of the staples of the class is to draw forced diagrams. This is where you have to show an object and draw arrows on it in every direction that a force is acting, and the size or the length of those arrows should be proportional to the forces. Let's say that I'm sitting here with my fat butt in a chair, not moving up, not moving down, not moving in any other direction. I'm just sitting here, speaking into a microphone, in a darkened room, and it's late at night. Anyway, what forces are acting on me? First off, gravity from Earth is pulling me down. That's a force. But because I'm not moving, there must be an equal and opposite force, or a sum of forces, pushing me back up. In this case, that's the chair, straining to hold me up but providing that equal and opposite force. In this situation, Gravity would be a fundamental force acting on me, while the secondary contact force is the chair pushing back. If you want to get really complicated, it's the electromagnetic force on the molecules in my body being repulsed by the electromagnetic force of the molecules in the chair, so that's how you can reduce this down to fundamental forces, but that's unimportant for this discussion. It's just a little bit extra for those of you who are interested. 
Another force diagram that we can draw would be a pool ball on a pool table, just as it's being hit by a cue. There are five forces acting on it in this case. First is gravity. It's pulling it towards the center of Earth. Second is the pool table, providing an equal and opposite force pushing it back up. That's why the ball doesn't move up or down. Third is the pool cue, providing a very large force, we'll say across or to the side, and that is not balanced by anything. The fourth force is the tiny force of air resistance in the opposite direction that the ball is moving. It's negligible in this case, but it becomes important later on. The fifth force is friction, also acting in the direction opposite the ball's motion because of the frictional force between the ball and the pool table. And again, it's a secondary contact force. So there are five forces. Two are balanced and two are in the same direction opposing the third. What happens to the ball that's been struck? You imparted a huge force, relatively speaking, but it was a one-shot deal. You very rapidly accelerated the ball and it will move across the table. In the absence of any other opposing force, it would continue in that direction at that velocity forever. But it doesn't. Both air resistance and the friction of the table provide constant opposing forces acting against the ball long after it's left contact with the cue stick. Because those forces are now acting on the ball, and because there is now nothing opposing them, they will decelerate the ball, providing an acceleration in the direction opposing motion, until it stops and there are only two forces again acting on it, the pool table pushing up and gravity pulling down, barring of course hitting another ball, the side, or a pocket, or something else. Now let's return to the original statement by Mr. Clark. He said that the model of gravity as an accelerative force is wrong, because if you drop an object, it will accelerate until it reaches a terminal velocity and then not accelerate anymore. Perhaps by this point you might be able to predict what I'm going to say about why he is incorrect. If an object is dropped from space in the vicinity of a planetary body, it will fall towards that object due to gravity. Right away, by definition, gravity is an accelerative force. If gravity could not cause an object to accelerate, then the velocity would be unchanged and the object wouldn't fall at all. But just like in our pool ball example, there are opposing forces at work. An obvious one is when the object hits the ground. But if you have an atmosphere, then all of those molecules and all those atoms in the atmosphere, or the air, will exert an opposite force, trying to decelerate the object. Since the decelerating force of air drag is proportional to the velocity, as the falling object moves faster and faster and faster, being accelerated under the constant accelerating force of gravity, uh, ignoring that you're very slightly farther away from the object than when you're closer to it, and so gravity does slightly change a little bit, but fairly constant force of gravity, the decelerating force of air drag actually increases and it reaches a point where the object is moving so fast that the decelerating force of air drag or air resistance is equal to that of gravity. At this point, the object will still fall. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion unless acted on by an unbalanced force, another one of Newton's laws. The falling object stays at the same constant velocity because the forces on it are now balanced, so there is a zero net acceleration. So unlike what Mr. Clark claimed, gravity is, indeed, an accelerative force. Our models are correct, he just doesn't understand that air resistance is another force that will oppose motion. 
And for the record, as I said, there are some complications to this simple physics description, as there almost always are. As I mentioned, the first one is if you're starting way, way, way far away from a planet and you get really close to a planet, the acceleration due to gravity is going to change a little bit. You know, it's negligible in most cases dropping an object from the human height. That's negligible. Another thing is since the air density or the density of air increases as you get closer to the surface of the planet, then drag force also increases so your object would actually slow down very, very slightly as terminal velocity decreases. Uh, another one is that there's a buoyancy effect. This is more obvious if you were to drop uh, a lead weight into water. Uh, you get a buoyancy effect, or say, you know, an ice cube into water, you get a buoyancy effect. There is also a buoyancy effect in air. It's just really, 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 really small. There are also relativistic effects that come in if you're moving any appreciable fraction of the speed of light. But again, in most cases, we're not moving at any fraction of the speed of, or any appreciable fraction of the speed of light. But again, the basic idea remains the same. It's all about balancing forces, and gravity is a force. It's just when terminal velocity is reached, it's being perfectly balanced. A listener, local skeptic, and originator of Skepticamp sent me a before its news story with a video entitled, quote, The Four Lunar Hologram Waves Filmed So Far. In it, the narrator claims that the moon is actually a hologram. He makes a caveat at the beginning, though. When we look at the moon, we get the sense of whether we're looking at a 2D projection or the actual 3D moon. This is a very difficult thing to prove, as much of it is gut feeling, and gut feeling is hard to prove. That comes in just before the first minute of the 11-minute video, so right away a keen skeptic or average observer should notice something. The only evidence that is likely to be presented is visual, where you're going to need to make a judgment call and where his personal opinion of how it looks is what this is going to be based on. Moving on, he has an interesting idea about the burden of evidence. There are times when we put the camera on the moon that it just does not look 3D, and what you're going to hear from the mainstream and science is that when the moon's fully lit, it's going to look that way. Well, I got news for you guys. I'm putting you all on notice. You have the burden of proof just like I do. You have to prove the things you have told us about the moon are true. You have to prove your science. You have to prove your moon shots. You have to prove everything just like I do. I have to prove what I have witnessed now and what I know about the moon, and I will do that. But the mainstream line that we have been told about the moon is a lie. While he was saying that, a quote attributed to Adolf Hitler flashed on the screen, quote, If you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed, end quote. He went on to say that all of the photos, all of the science, etc., including, you know, Apollo and Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, etc., are all lies. He also prefaced his evidence by saying that he had been contacted by people, covertly, who should be in the know that he's on the right track. But he raises an interesting question about the burden of evidence. Who has it in this case? Does the Hitler quote apply, philosophically at least? Despite not being a philosopher, even playing one on TV or an undergraduate, I would say no. And I would invoke at least one logical fallacy as part of my reason for saying no. That would be the argument from antiquity. The moon has been a fairly constant feature in our night sky since any sort of recorded history, oral or written, began. If the moon were a hologram, 
wouldn't it need to be a hologram since that time? So wouldn't it need to be, like, aliens or something doing it as opposed to people? It couldn't be the Illuminati or whomever, assuming that it were done by someone. I also don't think that in this case the argument from antiquity is actually a fallacy because it actually does offer positive evidence by way of necessitating a technology that we didn't have at the time to pull this off, therefore constraining who could have done it or what could have done it. Another reason why I don't think that we have the burden of evidence is that pretty much everything says that he's wrong. Every observation, every space probe. Even if you don't believe any of the space probes or the Apollo missions or the lunar meteorites, and there are people who don't, what about tides? There has to be something up there that causes a large gravitational acceleration that behaves just as we would expect if the moon were a real, physical object with that much mass. A mass that's consistent with an object of that volume given what we know about the gravitational constant that's been independently measured for over 100 years. You don't have to trust any observations of the moon itself. Just look at its gravitational effects on Earth. That is, of course, unless you're Bill O'Reilly and don't know that the moon's gravity causes tides. Anyway, it's a clever way of twisting the burden of evidence, and it's one that we see often in pseudoscience, where the claimant says that mainstream science has just as much a burden of evidence as they do. What they fundamentally ignore in the claim is that Usually, the reason that something actually is mainstream science is because it has so much evidence for it, already, from different kinds of observations that are completely independent. The idea that, okay, now you're making a claim, therefore I suddenly have to go back and explain to you 100, 200, 500 years of scientific evidence just because you're making a claim in five seconds... Eh, that doesn't really follow. That doesn't quite seem fair. When looking at his claimed evidence, and I do suggest that you do, and it's linked up in the show notes, of course, in the interest of fairness, since the video doesn't really translate into audio, you really should go look at it, he says that what he is showing is a wave event, which looks to me exactly what poorly synced scans from a video recording device would look like. He also shows what he calls UFOs that he, quote, would have called birds in the old days, end quote, but he doesn't anymore. To me, they look like out-of-focus bugs quickly moving across the camera's field of view, like the Denver UFO case from about maybe two summers ago. It was bugs in front of the camera. But more to the point, in support of his claim, he shows these wave things, where the second one is different from the others and is preceded by what he calls a wash. The second one also just so happens to be a half-full moon, whereas the others are nearly full, and it just kind of looks like he had bad weather. The atmosphere was very turbulent, and so the moon looks wavy. We see this all the time, but we don't say that it's because it's a hologram. But as I was saying, more to the point, he claims that these waves are evidence and that it looks 2D to him, but then he blows off the explanation that it's because of the phase of the moon when the sun is directly overhead, so it looks flat. He says that he knows of that mainstream explanation, but that, quote, there's a difference you can distinguish through an eyepiece, end quote. Sorry, but it's up to him to provide that evidence and that criteria. But let's talk about how he could actually show at least the objective things that he points to, UFOs and the wave, and that they're real. I can think of a very simple way. Get a second camera system. 
have two cameras, completely different makes and models, both looking at the moon at the same time. If the UFO appears in one and not the other, then you know it's an issue with that camera as opposed to a real feature on the moon. And for the wave part, you need some sort of other system that records the moon. I don't know the details of his setup, but as I said, it looks to me like scan lines being out of sync. Perhaps a video feed from a camera into a computer, one at maybe 30 hertz, the other at 24 hertz, something like that. Maybe a webcam type camera that reads out line by line instead of a full image at a time. Either of those seem likely from what looks to me like a recording artifact. So, get a different system, entirely that uses different technology such as maybe an SLR camera that will read out frame by frame as opposed to something like a GoPro or an iPhone camera that reads out line by line. Oh, and did you see it with your eye at all as opposed to just through the video feed? If the wave shows up in everything, including to the unaided eye, then you've gotten a step closer to showing that this is a real phenomenon rather than an artifact with your recording method. And I think it's one of those things that separates the more skeptical and scientific type from the pseudoscientific or conspiratorial. They see a phenomenon and jump to conspiracy or something weird, like the moon is a hologram. We see a phenomenon and think of ways that it might not be real and to check for those things for first, those anomalies in the recording method or a bug in front of the lens. And we don't post weird videos to YouTube. In his wrap-up, around the 9 minute 30 second mark, he says that there's no way that he's the only one who's recorded this, but that no mainstream source has come out, therefore we're being lied to. Then that he also is 90% sure that there's a hologram covering the moon. For listeners of Coast to Coast AM, all I have to say about this final clip is Steve Quayle. For people not familiar with the man without resorting to ad hominems, Steve Quayle is an individual who displays what one might call the signs of paranoid delusions with religious overtones. His bio on the Coast to Coast AM website states, quote, For over 30 years, he has been investigating ancient civilizations, giants, UFOs, and biological warfare as they relate to the future of mankind. Stephen discusses the coming worst-case scenarios approaching this world and how they interrelate to each other. Earthquakes, volcanoes, nuclear and biological terrorism, coupled with the planned financial meltdown of the U.S. dollar, will thrust us into unimagined tribulations. Stephen Quayle is on record as stating that we have moved from the realm of natural threats into the arena of supernaturally guided events of the unseen hand of evil orchestrating world events of unfathomable proportions." End quote. On April 1st of this year, and no, it was not an April Fool's Day show, Steve, quote, "...contended that secret powerful forces have been aligned against humanity since ancient times and currently manifest chaos and threats of war all over the world. He addressed how these forces hope to use genetic manipulation to create a super race of humans and hybrids. They believe they can enhance humanity and ultimately do away with the human genome, and substitute it with something sinister brewed in laboratories, he said. The world 
xenogenesis means to add a third set of chromosomes into the human genome, suggesting a connection to aliens or the fallen angels. Transhumanism, with its life extension goals and view of the human body as a work in progress, is repellent to Quayle, who sees it as a hubristic effort to undo God's creation. Further, he argues that chemtrails and GMO foods are designed to destroy the atmosphere and cause negative changes in humanity. The current outbreak of Ebola and what looks like some strains of unknown hemorrhagic fevers are likely the result of someone testing a new bioweapon, he added. As for the missing Malaysian plane, Quayle suspects it was hijacked by remote control and, according to his sources, actually landed in Pakistan. The Fukushima disaster may have been part of the Illuminati's goal to reduce the planetary population, he remarked. Birth defects are already showing up on the west coast, and kids should be taking potassium, blocking iodine, he advised. He also touched on the recent mysterious deaths of a number of bankers whom he believes were silenced because they knew too much. Within that smorgasbord of topics, Steve addressed rainbows. In a two-minute clip I'm about to play, if you are a drinking person, I suggest taking a shot every time a new topic is brought up. By the way, I want to address the rainbow. The rainbow is an interesting thing. According to the CIA gentleman, and this is only in my book, and it's only because somebody felt they had to get this information out because this was a dying man's last wishes, and if he would have got it out while he was alive, he would have been murdered. But the rainbow, if you look at the colors of the spectrum, those are frequencies of light, and those frequencies of light act as a barrier, if you will, to evil and malevolent spirits. By the way, it's not a religious statement. People all over the world since the beginning of time have understood real basic good spirit, evil spirit. That's why people with no, quote, exposure to Western theology, Christianity, or civilization, like the tribe just found in the Amazon, they know the difference. Well, the rainbow, as it's, it's basically detailed in the chapter of my book, again, it blows my mind at just how the chemtrails, now here's where it's important, the chemtrails and all of the electromagnetic and the other forms of scalar energy that are transforming our weather into a, uh, and I believe in global warming, I just don't believe mankind is the cause of it outside of fallen technology. But what's interesting, George, is that rainbow that was a promise, again, in the Bible, of God's covenant with mankind is being destroyed. That's why people send me photographs, I'm sure they send coast photographs, all the time of rainbows that have different colors. And those all have frequencies, all matter all matter is energy vibrating at a specific frequency under gravity, and gravity is pressure. It's not a wave. I know that people argue with that. But the point being, this is one of the most mind-blowing things, and this is why the chemtrails. And somebody said, you know, isn't it just like they want to bring about a primordial atmosphere on the Earth? And somebody said, well, well what does that mean? I said, what it means is we're in for a very difficult time. Phew. Okay, so I counted at least eight different topics there. So I have at this point finished my Diet Coke with all its aspartame goodness. But there are a few things here to tease out that make this actually worth talking about instead of raising the specter of, well, what would you think about someone if you heard them say the last two minutes to you? Anyway, the claim about rainbows is that one, it's made of colors. Two, those colors represent frequencies of light. Six, and by the way, matter is energy that vibrates at a frequency. Seven, gravity is a wave, but by the way, three, 
Those frequencies of light in the rainbow act as a barrier against evil. Four, the rainbow is being destroyed by chemtrails and other things. Five, as evidenced by photographs he's been sent. Eight, therefore bad things are going to happen as the rainbow barrier that is a visible manifestation of light frequencies changes to presumably let evil in. Whew, okay. In order, one, yes, a rainbow is made of colors. Two, colors are frequencies of light, which is also true. Rainbows occur because different wavelengths of light, or frequencies, they're actually interchangeable and you can convert from one to the other by using the speed of light, they have different speeds in different kinds of material. Take a glass or a plastic prism, for example. What's happening is that the light passes from one medium, air, to another, glass or maybe water or something else, when that happens, its speed changes. If the light comes in and goes out perfectly straight, like you have a window with no angled edges, then it's okay. Well, angles is in anything other than 90 degrees, then it's okay. You're not going to see any effect. But not only does the speed change in the medium, but the amount it can be bent will also change if it hits at an angle. That's why prisms are triangles and not rectangles, and they require those non-parallel sides to get the effect. So, light either enters or leaves at an angle, and the faster the frequencies, or the shorter the wavelengths, they get bent more than the slower frequencies or longer wavelengths, and that would be purple versus red. The purple ones get bent more than the red ones. The same thing happens when you get small spherical water drops and you are looking in a direction opposite to a bright source like the sun or the moon. The many water drops act like a prism as the light enters them and exits them at non-parallel angles because they're spheres, and the red light gets bent a little while the purple light gets bent a lot. Technically speaking, if we could see infrared and ultraviolet light and enough of it made it through the atmosphere and also made it through water, we would see the rainbow through those colors as well, and it's not just through what we now see the visible spectrum being. On to point six, that matter is energy that vibrates at certain frequencies. Well, if string theory, I don't like using the term theory, it's a hypothesis to me, is correct, then this is a sorta, also kinda, maybe correct. I have a very tenuous grasp of string theory, but this is correct enough, if it is correct, to move on. Point seven, that gravity is a wave. Well, in the first clip, we covered that gravity is a force. What actually conveys that force is unknown, or at least undetected and unproven at this point. Pretty much all forces are thought to be conveyed from one thing to another, one object or molecule or quark or whatever to another, by fundamental force carriers such as photons or gluons. In the case of gravity, it's the hypothetical graviton, a particle that has never been detected individually. A paper published in 2006 suggested that it is impossible with current technology to do so because the likelihood of interaction, also known as the cross-section, is so low, even lower than neutrinos which pass through Earth without blinking their anthropomorphized eyes. The paper suggested that if you put a particle detector with the mass of Jupiter around a neutron star and it operated at 100% efficiency, it would detect one graviton every 10 years. But then the shield needed to prevent against a false detection due to neutrinos would collapse the whole thing into a black hole. That said, gravitational waves, which are effectively coherent states of gravitons traversing the universe, could be detected and there are experiments out there that are trying to. 
So, while he says that gravity is a wave, at this point it's somewhat semantic, though the standard model of particle physics holds that it is a particle. On to point three, that frequencies of light act as a barrier against evil. Um, I'll just say that's beyond the scope of this podcast. Point four is that the rainbow is being destroyed by chemtrails and other things, and five is that he has photos of evidence for this thing, this effect. I'd like to see said evidence. I searched the web and couldn't find anything, though perhaps I was using the wrong search terms. Uh, One would think that if a bunch of people are sending this to him and Coast to Coast and other people, that it would be available through a simple internet search. But other than camera anomalies, which could be that the camera detector is for red, green, and blue photons and uses combinations of those to represent color, and since rainbows are monochromatic and you know it splits up the frequencies, it can be really tough on camera sensors if they're not that good. Other than that, I have no idea what he's actually talking about. A rainbow is just refraction of white light spread out into, visibly, the optical spectrum of red through purple. Saying that colors are missing just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I've seen some rainbows that are incomplete because there was no rain at that spot, so it appeared in parts that certain colors were fainter than others, but otherwise this is kinda crazy talk. Which leads into the final point, point eight, that bad things are going to happen. Let's just say that I've listened to Steve Quayle say this for over a decade, that bad things are just around the corner. As with all people who talk about Doomsday, they've yet to be shown to be true. But by looking into even something as stream-of-consciousness kind of crazy-sounding as this, there's still something that we can learn. This isn't exactly a Q&A question, but Kathy asked on Facebook if I could discuss the announcement of a formation of a new moon around Saturn. Since it's not feedback and not really new news, I've stuck it into the Q&A as a what's up with that kind of question. The paper that was published that was the source of the press release that was announced all over the place is by Carl Murray and others published in one of the four main planetary science journals, Icarus. It was entitled, quote, the discovery and dynamical evolution of an object at the outer edge of Saturn's A-ring, end quote. The paper is just over three pages long, really short, and the abstract is only two sentences long, quote, We report on the serendipitous discovery of an unresolved, evolving, sub-kilometer radius object with a semi-major axis less than 10 kilometers inside that of the edge of Saturn's main rings. The object has been detectable in Cassini images since at least May 2012, and its changing orbit shows evidence of a possible disruption in early 2013. Relevant, uh, completely an aside, but relevant to an image that's been making the rounds lately from Curiosity rover on Mars, the NAVCAM, I like this sentence in the paper. The discovery image was one of a pair taken 33 seconds apart with exposure durations of 680 milliseconds and 150 milliseconds. The feature was apparent in both images, thereby ruling out the possibility of it being a cosmic ray artifact. Without getting too technical, Saturn's rings are a very dynamic place with lots of complicated interactions between ring particles, the numerous known moons and possibly unknown moons, and the gravity field of Saturn itself. 
Classically speaking, the Roche limit is the distance from a planet where an object will break up due to tidal forces, and or that cohesive objects can't accrete together because as soon as they start to form, they would be ripped apart by tidal forces. Tidal forces being where the force of gravity from the parent object, in this case Saturn, is so much stronger on the side closest to it that the force of gravity is going to be so much weaker on the side facing away that it's just ripped apart. But that's a simplified model. We know that the Roche limit isn't perfect because Mars moon Phobos is within the Roche limit, but it's still intact. The main rings of Saturn are within the Roche limit, and they do show structure, and there are a few moons within the rings, though most of them are outside the ring system. Part of the reason that you can get objects remaining intact is that they have material strength, like steel versus balsa wood or a a sphere of flour. That's not factored into the classic Roche limit equation. Part of the reason that you can get objects aggregating or accreting is that they can stick together, like if you were to press two snowballs together. You also have the moons just stirring things up, creating resonances where things are pulled or pushed together more than they normally would be in just an unperturbed disk. With all of those factors combined, many have hoped or expected that we would see aggregates like this. We've also seen features called propellers for years, which are hundreds of meters across, but have dynamic effects in the rings hundreds of kilometers away. The latest object, or the one in this paper, appears to be similar, but not. It's on the outer edge of the egg ring, so it's within the main rings, but about as far as you can get from Saturn and still be in the main rings. And that means that it's also perturbed a lot by the moons that gravitationally shepherd the rings. So you're far away from Saturn, or reasonably far away, so you're towards the outer part of the Roche limit, and you're getting perturbed and stirred and pulled and pushed a lot by all of these many moons that are interacting with you. That's all a very, very long and complicated way of saying that this is a really cool observation. We may be seeing a new moon forming, or we may just be seeing an aggregate that got bigger than other aggregates just by chance, and it will be broken up soon, ripped apart by tidal forces. What's neat is that this is something that, if we were to go back to Saturn within our lifetimes, we may actually know the answer to, because the timescale for this isn't thousands of years, but probably on the timescale of a human lifetime, at least to know if it's going to be broken up or if it's going to persist for a while. In terms of announcements, there are two, both having to do with interviews. First off, the Conspiracy Skeptic episode about the Blood Moons was posted within a few hours of the lunar eclipse last Monday. So... That made it up. I suggest, of course, that everyone pay homage and listen to Carl's excellent podcast. Also, there is the Fade to Black interview that I did with Jimmy Church on the Art Bell Dark Matter Radio Network. It is three hours. It is posted to YouTube. Um, I suggest first going to YouTube, clicking so it registers that, hey, another person viewed it. Comment if you like, thumbs up if you like, Uh, don't thumbs down unless you really, really feel like you need to. But otherwise, I would generally suggest using one of those free services that convert YouTube videos to MP3 files and listen to that. I start at about the 34-minute mark into the episode and then go straight on to the end. It is an interesting interview. We covered a lot of topics, and I have a blog post up published today. uh, That would be Monday, April 21st, that goes over... Some of the things that I wish I would have done differently, uh, for example, I horribly handled the question about the Apollo 
uh, moon hoax claim about radiation in Van Allen Belt. There are some links to other things that we talked about that I didn't quite get out because I couldn't think of them off the top of my head, and just sort of general observations about the interview itself, as well as my emphasis being trying to sound somewhat reasonable. So, as I said, Fade to Black, it's up on YouTube. I've linked to it on my blog. I've linked to it on the Facebook page of the podcast. And there will be a link up in the show notes for this episode. So, with that in mind, um, I guess it's time to end the episode. That wraps up this topic for the 107th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned stuff at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. You can also send an email directly to me at podcast.net podcast at sjrdesign.net there we go you can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website on the blog post for the episode or the facebook page for the podcast and i generally respond to tweets i'm at pseudo astro p-s-e-u-d-o-a-s-t-r-o i do read every message and appreciate the feedback and am usual uh, two or three months behind if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them, and also you know, rate this podcast wherever you see it, and tell people about it. 